The Future by Stéphane Molyneux, Chapter 21. When they left the asylum, Roman shuddered in the steepening light of the setting sun. They climbed onto the waiting sky taxi. David settled into his white pew. Roman paced back and forth. I've got to get out of this city, he said, almost snarling. Yeah, I'm not going to argue with you there, said David. You know, you're going to have to come and live with my tribe for a while after this, right? said Roman. The thought had crossed my mind, said David. If you're not convinced after your tour, then yes, I will come with you. Although, at the moment, I think it's a little bit more likely that you will join at least the outskirts of the sieve than I will paint myself blue and run half-naked through the woods. Roman grinned. Whoever said, off. David laughed. <laughs> it's, it's been a while since I went dive-walking. Let's do that. Do you like being confusing? David clasped his fingers together, turned his palms upwards and stretched his shoulders. The nanobots create a bubble that surrounds you. They provide air and motion, and you can travel underwater wherever you step and look at. Roman shuddered slightly. I'm not a huge fan of deep water. How deep can you go? David shrugged. Steep as you want. You don't have to worry about pressure or the bends. The air stays constant. And it will be earlier in the day there. We're chasing the sun. Roman swallowed. And how? How often does this diving go wrong? It hasn't happened, to my knowledge. And I would be the person who would know, since I insure all this stuff. The older man shuddered. And what about the beasts and creatures and, and, and squids and, and sharks? And those creepy things with the little skylights over their demon eyes. No complaints. It's too weird for them to do much but run away or <laughs> swim away, sorry. David leaned slightly towards the older man. But I thought that living in the woods made you tough, with skin like tree bark and hands like granite. Surely a few bubbles and some little fishies aren't enough to make you faint, right? Roman waved him away. Ah, oh, such a woman. David laughed, brushing his hair back. <laughs> More of a mermaid in this case. Are you coming, old man? They took the sky taxi to the coast, over the barely visible submerged houses in the swamps, where David explained that some people were fascinated by cypress roots and alligators and loved the view from just below the surface. It has kind of turned out, in our state of freedom, or statelessness, that people are, in, in fact, quite mad in their obsessions. My daughter's fanatically into lizards, or, or worse, now she's all about the ducks. <laughs> that stuff tends to wane as they grow older, but some people just keep their obsession, sometimes for their whole lives. Roman did not respond to this snippet of information, and David intuitively understood that the older man was on a mission, and chit-chat just blew past him like leaves in the wind. When they got to the seaside... Roman stared at the squat houses on tall stilts. I guess you get quite a tide here, he said, gesturing at the spider-like structures. I think so, but that's not why. He trailed off as one of the houses stretched its legs and smoothly lumbered off down the coast. David smiled at an inside joke. Mobile homes, he said. Those are the laziest nomads I've ever seen in my life, murmured Roman in wonder. At a seaside shack, quaint in its ancient wood and red and white striped overhanging canopy, they rented the scubbles, scuba bubbles, from a slow-moving and even slower-talking bearded man in dreadlocks. As they walked towards the surf, holding the bright yellow rings of their scubbles, Roman scowled. Druggy, he muttered. Total degenerate. Every now and then, we are one of those in the tribe. They get addicted to mushrooms or peyote. Like your VR addicts, I guess. It's pitiful. Want you to run away from reality? They become loud, useless, self-important fools who think that they are wise when they are just delirious and distracted and dumb. David pursed his lips and nodded. Addiction is very rare here because 
I'm not talking about your tribe, but in history, in, in the old world, addiction was just self-medication for the trauma of child abuse and the adult abuse called politics. Maybe that happens where you are. You can let me know, although we probably have different standards for what constitutes... David was distracted by a flock of slow-moving pelicans winging their way above the waves. He watched them pass, then shook his head slightly. Anyway, we... We solved the problem of addiction by improving childhoods. In the past, the addict wasn't trying to feel happy. He was just trying to feel normal. Me, I'm a happy guy in general. Today has been a bit unusual, but overall I'm a very positive person. He held a flat hand up in the air as they stepped into the slowly rolling seawater. I have a happiness level of about 100. People traumatized as children have happiness levels of maybe 20. When they take a drug, it raises them to maybe a happiness level of 110. It's like a 90-point difference. Then, when the drug wears off, they crash down to a happiness level of maybe minus 20, which is kind of agony for them. But what they have done, what they have tasted, is what it's like to be normally happy. It's like someone with chronic pain. He doesn't take a painkiller to get high, but just to feel normal, not in pain. So... The addict starts off miserable, but he doesn't really know that he's miserable. He just thinks that misery is just the human conditioner or something like that. And then he takes a drug, and he feels normal, or slightly better than normal. And then he crashes down to a real misery, which reveals to him that he's been miserable his whole adult life, maybe his whole entire life. So he tries to drug again because the horror of his own misery has been revealed to him because he had a couple of hours of feeling normal. But the drug doesn't get him to 110 anymore. Maybe it only gets him to 95. And then he crashes down to minus 50, and that's where the cycle comes from. They're just trying to feel normal, and they end up half killing themselves. God! exclaimed Roman, leaning into the salty waves. Do you have an explanation for anything that doesn't come back to, oh, I had such a bad childhood? Talk about obsessive. You're like someone who wants to live underwater and look up the ass of an alligator all day. Trauma? He spat. Hell, it's just a matter of weakness. A lack of self-control. A lack of acceptance of the responsibility of being a damn adult. People aren't delicate little broken flowers from bad childhoods. They make actual decisions in the year and now. And sometimes those decisions are terrible and stay terrible and just get worse. People fall into self-indulgence. They terrorize everyone around them. They demand happiness without having to earn it. And everyone else has to hold them up and keep them going and feed them and wipe their asses. Sometimes people are just pieces of crap, waste material in life, useless eaters, an insult to bipeds, sentimental garbage trying to drag everyone down with them. Everyone and everything here seems like some kind of pitiful and ringing bad mother, useless in her emotions and demanding forgiveness for every bad imaginary thing she ever did. The sky taxi had taken them far enough west that the sun had climbed back up from the horizon like a strange blinding orb that rose in the west. Roman's face was a mask of contempt and hatred. Against the white-capped, churning waves, he looked like an aging god of the deep, enraged at being summoned to the unfriendly air. David took a deep breath. He was not alarmed by the old man's rage and strange eloquence. He knew it was a bomb that had to be diffused indelicately, because any delicate handling was more likely to make it go off even more violently. He nodded, strapping the scubble to his waist. It does seem quite mad, I agree. In the old world, people thought that dysfunction was caused by Radio waves, bad food, fluoride, chemicals, sin, racism, sexism, you name it. (laughs) In the ancient world, Aristotle thought that there were four layers of elements. David swung his hand in levels up from his chest. Earth, water, air, fire. Fire leapt up because it wanted to rejoin the fire element. Water flowed downhill because it wanted to rejoin the water element. You get the idea. It was all very complicated, as you can imagine, because... There are so many exceptions to those rules. It was even worse with the motion of Mars, or the retrograde motion of Mars. The ancient astronomer Ptolemy thought that 
God made everything go in a circle because a circle was a perfect form in the style of Plato. So the orbits of the planets had to be circles with the Earth at the center, of course, because that's what it feels like. But the Earth is the third planet out, and sometimes Mars seems to swing back in the sky as the Earth accelerates faster around the sun. So they created this crazy set of calculations, pages and pages, in order to figure out where Mars was going to be. But sometimes, you know, when things get too complex, it's because you're missing the one central variable. Put the sun at the center of the solar system, you only need one calculation to know where Mars is. Make the gravity of mass constant, and you don't need four elements and atoms that yearn to recombine with some fantasy layered cake of platonic perfection. Make the speed of light constant, and you unlock the power of the atom. All this is, I dare say, elementary. <laughs> and I apologize for that dad joke. David pointed at Roman. And, and you have this belief, which you, you think explains something called free will. But what does it really explain? It's circular. Why did this person do something bad? Because they chose badly. No additional information is added to the equation. Obviously, they chose to do something bad, but putting a kind of random ghost in the center of the meat packet we call a body doesn't explain anything. Any more than saying that God created the universe explains where the universe came from, or, or saying that God gave us moral commandments explains morality. Roman scowled again, working his yellow straps. By any time, he took a deep breath, any time you say, that a man's decisions are caused by something before, you're just setting up a series of slabs that fall over because of the one behind it. There is a magic mystery at the center of the soul. You can't explain why people make decisions any more than I can, because that's the whole point of free will. We hang in the balance. We look down the path or paths of every outcome we can think of. And we strike out in some direction based upon what? You say a bad childhood. I say that strips us of free will. We are not slabs. We are free souls. David cocked his head slightly and spread his hands. His sandy hair suddenly blew back from his broad forehead as if startled. Hey, hey, I'm a free will guy. One of the main points of the sieve is to restore free will to the center of the mind. We've spent about a century clearing away all the rubble that gets in the way of free will. If a kid grows up hungry, he ends up stunted. Maybe he doesn't get to play basketball because he's shorter. So, because of the deficiencies in his childhood, his free will is limited because he can't choose a sport that requires good height. Or maybe his bones are more brittle than they could have been, in which case he has to take supplements and exercise more, which also reduces his choices to not do those things. Children raised well and reasonably can make choices without being coerced by the unconscious avoidance of trauma or be susceptible to addiction or, or, or promiscuity or, or ill health or brutal relationships. We are trying to clear away all the impediments to free will. So children grow up with a full view of their opportunities rather than a train track or a couple of narrow passageways left over from the collapse of their lives. Sorry, that analogy kind of got away from me. Roman scowled, fidgeting with his straps. Yeah, it's just that kind of looseness that turns my stomach. You keep your explanations. I will retain my firm belief in the narrowness of the path of virtue. You can spin off into infinity with all the choices you want. I will stay to the straight and narrow path of goodness. David took another deep breath and said, Just squeeze the ring. The tension suddenly left the argument as Roman tightened his grip and the water scudding past his calves parted suddenly, blown expertly back by a bubble of expanding nanobots. David smiled. Go on take a step. Roman swallowed and David could see the ripple of muscles as his jaw tightened. He took a tentative step forward and the water parted ahead of him 
and drew in slightly behind him. Roman said, well, what, what about the sand? The bots only blow back against water. They will make the sand a bit more firm, but it won't disappear under your feet. And I, I, I don't know how deep we go. I don't know how deep we're going to go. He shivered, staring at the churning, darkening ocean. God help me, but it gets pretty dark down there. The bots know where you're looking. They'll shine light in that direction if it gets dark. When? And we'll be able to talk, asked the older man uneasily. Sure, sound travels hundreds of times further underwater than in air. Don't worry. I know that it would be tragic if you couldn't hear the sound of my voice for even a minute or two. Roman responded only with a guttural growl. Taking a deep breath, he strode into the water. It parted before him as if he were the central protagonist in a tiny prophecy. Chapter 22 Roman visibly shattered as the foamy water churned over his head. He doggedly continued on walking along the sand until the bottom gave way to rocks and coral. He started when he heard David's voice in his ear. So, pretend you are walking level or, or, or climbing slight stairs and the bots will adjust the floor for you. What? <sighs> I, I can read my mind? Roman was panting with stress. No, they read body movements and know when you want to walk level or climb or, or go down. Roman tried walking as if there were an invisible path under his feet. Sure enough, he felt a foamy surface appear under the soles of his soft shoes. He took a deep breath, feeling dizzy and slightly nauseous. I am where no man should be, doing things that no man should do, he muttered. David grinned and gave him a thumbs up. And you could live to over 130. That's the whole point of technology. Roman grunted, then noticed a distant, long, needle-like object spearing through the water to his right. What the hell is that? David glanced over. Oh, that's a sharp ship. Some aquanauts heading down to Atlantis, I suppose. They're quite mad about not disturbing the ocean, so they make their ships like needles, so they displace less water. And, in answer to your next question, aquanauts are people who mostly live underwater. Sometimes it's people who've lost the use of their legs. Sometimes it's people with brittle bones. And sometimes it's people who just prefer to live like fishes. You're kind of old school. You should appreciate that. Evolutionarily speaking, we were in the water long before we were on land, so they're just old, old school, I guess. I'm sure they would give you long lectures about your adoption of the radical new technology called land. Roman scowled. Atlantis seems a bit obvious. I don't look so startled. We have some books. David shrugged. They're not the most subtle group. <laughs> Their anthem is an ancient song called Under Pressure. Roman groaned. David continued. They're doing some amazing stuff, though. Harvesting the heat of underwater volcanoes. Did you know that the center of the Earth is hotter than the surface of the sun? They're also resurrecting species that went extinct from the 18th century onwards. Mapping the ocean floor, finding a truly amazing number of new sea creatures. One has an enzyme in its cartilage that really helped us eliminate cancer. Did I grow gills? David laughed. <laughs> Some of them would like to, but no DRO will sanction radical genetic body manipulation. Why not? Roman grunted, staring at the blue-shaded beauty around him. Well, the way it works... Are you sure you want to talk about this now? Roman stared around him at the rays of the setting sun spearing in soft shafts through the dark water. How now? It's also distracting. David nodded. They walked on, down and down. As the surrounding ocean shaded from blue to black, the two men saw a faint glowing line appearing before them, stringing down into the depths. David gestured. They used the bots to feed glowing plankton in a line so no one gets lost. Roman said nothing. His shoulders were hunched, his jaw tight. Would, would you like me to go ahead? The older man shook his head, marching on. 
wake out together. Various strange sea creatures, attracted by the glowing lines, came and nibbled at the plankton. Tiny, clear octopi, seahorses, slender, eel-like fishes with fins on their heads, iridescent, goggle-eyed creatures with horns, and in the shadows beyond the glow, dim shapes of larger creatures swirled, lit up in tight spotlights by the lit gazes of the two men. A large swimming beast cut across the glowing lines, scattering them. What the hell was that? cried Roman, emotionally naked in his sudden alarm. Porpoise, I think. Not a shark? Don't think so. Roman threw him a scornful look at the dark, as if to say, That seems like something you should be more sure about. David said, You need to remember to breathe. Everyone forgets that the first time. After a while... They walked down to a wide swath of low buildings, shaped like enormous bubbles. Some of the curved roofs were covered in barnacles, and various sizes of fish swirled above them, hunting, fighting, and fleeing. Others, as well as most of the passageways between them, had clear roofs, and people could be seen strolling through water in their scubbles. David pointed down. Follow me, the entrance is just down here. Get ready for the drying. No, what? grunted Roman, just as warm blown air began whipping around his hair, face, and body. They walked through a glowing portal into a large room with a sign on the wall reading Arrivals. A very pale young man greeted them. Roman's eyes widened because the young man seemed to have scales for skin. David whispered out of the side of his mouth. Sorry, I forgot to mention, some of them take underwater life very seriously. He turned to the young man. Hello, Aqualung. I'm sorry I didn't call ahead, but do you have any tables available for a late dinner at Beachside? The young man gestured, then nodded. Sure thing, David. Great to see you again. And you, friend of David? Roman said nothing. David said, They have the best seafood. Silence. The young man lifted a finger. Follow me. They were led down flat, wide corridors with clear, lit views of the ocean above. The bellies of sharks and rays drifted by overhead. Some scubble strollers wandered past. They came to a restaurant with tangy sea salt hanging in the air. Roman and David were seated at the table laid on the bottom of an enormous clamshell. Overhead, luminescent letters traced through the dark water, birthday wishes, ecological reminders, anniversary greetings. Seeing Roman's wide eyes, David smiled. Bart's drop food for the glowing plankton to feed on. It spells out letters for the restaurant guests. Roman scowled. Will we be served by a mermaid? Do you want to be? Only if she's topless. Oh, so you are okay with robots if they show a little skin. Ugh, growled the older man. His face suddenly grew serious. What if I died when we met on the mountain? What if we fought and I was vaporized and all this? David nodded. The ancient Norse warriors thought that their afterlife was Valhalla, where they drank mead, ate meat, and fought for eternity. This, here, can't be yours. Roman stared at him. It was a strangely intimate moment. A floating jellyfish brought the menus. Roman stared at his, turning it over and over. What the hell? You said this place had great seafood. David blinked, then laughed. (laughs) Oh, sorry. That's just what we say. Food served under the sea. You won't find any fish or shrimp here. Everyone comes to live in Atlantis because they love the sea. You might as well ask for meat at a vegetarian restaurant. Roman tossed the menu on the white tablecloth and scowled. Fine. Just order for me. The jellyfish returned, picking up the menus in a few tendrils, while pouring water from others. 
After David ordered for them, Roman picked up a knife and gestured at him. What the hell was on that pale guy's skin? Scales? Oh, no. Some people here have talked about growing gills, but as I said, no DRO would ensure that kind of genetic manipulation. And without insurance, you can't really do anything. Roman just stared at him. David pursed his lips. Okay, so DROs usually bundle health insurance along with contract enforcement and protection from violence. You can also buy divorce insurance, but we should talk about that another time. That's quite a complicated one. Anyway, if you get sick, the DRO pays for all your current treatment and future costs. So DROs only make money when the population stays healthy. In ancient China, you you paid your doctor every month until you got sick. It's similar to that. So we're pretty obsessed with keeping people healthy if you eat well, exercise, get sunlight and regular blood work, checkups, all the basics. You pay almost nothing for health insurance. If you gain weight or your blood work shows that you're eating badly or your muscle and bone mass decline, if you lose vitamin D, your health insurance costs go up. Roman scowled. So you have to give over all your private health information to some corporation. David looked genuinely shocked. I don't know where you're getting your information from. Some of your education seems a bit random to me. But there's no need to insult me by calling my DRO a corporation. It's not. David leaned forward on the table. Behind his head, outlined in phosphorescent trails in the black water beyond the glass, were the words, Happy birthday, Debbie. A cheer and a song went up from a nearby table. David's voice was deadly serious. Listen to me, Roman. Corporations were legal fictions invented by governments to protect the rich. Seeing the older warrior's tension, David took a soft step back. It's like if you had a choice of two banks to hold your money. Imagine, imagine you had money, and the first bank had a contract with you that if they lost your money you would get all the private assets of the bank managers. While the second bank said if they lost your money, they could just declare bankruptcy. You couldn't get a penny from anyone. Uh, The bank managers would get to keep everything. Where would you put your money? Roman thought for a moment. Yeah, well, the first one, of course, he said grudgingly. David nodded. Sure, right. The corporations in the old world were these weird half person, legal fictions that allowed corporate managers to take all the profits out of the business while the losses had to be eaten by the shareholders and employees. It was a one-way street for money and did more than just about anything to promote the rampant pillaging of the general population by the corporate managers. If you make money, you can become rich. If you lose money, you just declare bankruptcy or quit the corporation and no one can touch your personal assets was quite mad and had nothing to do with the free market. The free market should be driven by customers, not by legal activism on the part of the rich, the powerful, and the political. Why the hell did they do it, then? David laughed bitterly. (laughs) The wealthy who make their money in the free market are always a challenge to governments. Governments always need scapegoats for their own inevitable failures, and they love to point at the wealthy to strip mine the resentments of the less successful. They want to take the money of the rich and give it to the poor. But the problem then is that the rich don't want to make much money or want to leave for another country. So they give rich people the legal protection of the corporation so they will still want to make money and stick around. And the media, one of the greatest benefactors of this corporatism, constantly repeated that corporations were a feature of the free market when they were never chosen by customers but rather imposed by governments. In fact, corporations would be specifically rejected by customers if they had any choice, just as you wouldn't put your money in a bank where the managers could keep their assets if they blew all your cash. David's face was set hard. So no, Roman, we are not a corporation. We are what is called an entity, which means that we are legally tied to each other as a body of business. But if the DRO loses money, and for some reason we can't fulfill our contracts, I lose everything, personally. My wallet, 
my house, my savings, you name it. People can sue me into oblivion until the end of time. My contract rating would be destroyed. No one would ever hire me as a manager again. So I have every incentive to be responsible with my customer Satoshis. It's the same everywhere. I would never enforce a contract where the managers had no liability for losses. No one would. Anyway, back to health. The floating jellyfish returned with their food. The plates were giant oyster shells. Meat and vegetables swirled in a dark green soup. David picked up his spoon and fork. Health is fascinating. We are invested in the health of our customers, literally, because we can't make a Satoshi if they get sick. So we are very proactive about making sure they stay healthy. Free assessments, personal trainers, scans whenever they want, or whenever we think they need them, personalized, blood-dependent meal plans, you name it. It's one of the main reasons why we can get people to 130 now. If someone gets sick, we view that as our responsibility for failing to prevent it, so we pay. In the past, I was quite mad. When governments ran healthcare, they made money when people got and stayed sick, not when they were healthy. It's the exact opposite incentive you would want for a true healthcare system. Almost three quarters of illnesses back then were the result of people's bad choices. Obesity was massive. If you'll excuse the bad joke, 5% of the population consumed half the healthcare resources. People got sicker and fatter and sicker and fatter until, well, I'm sure you know what happened. Roman finally took a bite. The expression on his face was a clear advertisement for the wonder of the food. Mmm. Well, what if someone is born with some defect? David nodded. Life is risky, even for us. DROs are about managing that risk. People take out insurance for birth defects. The price varies on the genetic testing, of course. If a baby is born with such a defect, the price of the care is paid for by the DRO. Can I abort? Abortion is a violation of the non-aggression principle. The only time you can use violence is in immediate self-defense. At the same time, parents are not required to take care of their offspring. They can give them up for adoption very easily if they want. So, what do you do? Put a gun to the head of the woman who wants an abortion? David shook his head. Mm. You're talking about the problem of criminal violence. Usually, we peacefully torture people who use violence. Roman laughed grimly his lined face lit from above by the electric blue lights of the glittering letters beyond the glass. Peacefully torture? What the hell are you talking about? We exploit, or hack, the wiring in the human mind that equates social ostracism with torture. You know this better than me. We're herd animals, pack animals. We couldn't survive in solitude for most of our evolution. To be rejected by the tribe is a death sentence. You can't protect yourself at night, you can't hunt well, you can be easily circled by a pack of predators. And even if you survive all that, ostracism means genetic death. Boom. End of your bloodline. David tapped his temple in the dark. That's how we are wired. Social ostracism triggers the same parts of our pain centers that are activated by physical torture. It's like that horrible bargain in the old world when men were told to go to war for the government. The rulers were smart. They knew how to make men do it. They simply told women to reject men who didn't serve in the military. If enough women did that, and they usually did, then the lizard brains of the men performed a simple calculation. If the chance of being seriously wounded or killed in combat is less than the chance of failing to reproduce if I don't go to war, then go to war I will. Access to society is a privilege not a right. Technology reproduces the intimate knowledge that you have in your tribe about people's habits and virtues. You know everything about everyone. You grew up together and see each other in every kind of situation. DROs reproduce that with contract ratings. If you keep your word, keep the peace, pay your bills, your debts, then everyone knows and you gain all the rewards of living an honorable life. We are your tribe with better knowledge. 
Roman grunted, taking a sip of water. So, no privacy. Sounds like hell. David shrugged. What privacy do you have? In your tribe, everyone knows everyone's business. With us, in the sieve, you can have all the privacy you want, but it will cost you. You can shield your contract rating from everyone. That just means that people don't know how honest you are, so they have to charge extra for doing business with you. So, what do you do with murderers? Prevent them. Good childhoods, scans, murders must happen. Yes. Yes, they do happen, said David softly. Even with great childhoods, no obvious health problems, some bad wiring or, or, or bad choices does produce killers. It's incredibly rare, though. So, what do you do with them? Repeated Roman. How about you? What do you do? Roman's lips tightened. We have a tribunal, and if the killer is found guilty, he's put to death. We don't do that here. That would be a violation of the NAP, because it's not a situation of immediate self-defense. A murderer has no economic standing, David gestured at the distant invisible surface of the ocean. Everything is privately owned in the sieve, except the wilderness, which was the origin of this conversation between us. Roads, sidewalks, sky buses, homes, land, it's all privately owned. And when people sign contracts with DROs, which is the only real way to function in a complex society, they agree to never let convicted criminals use their property. If they do, they also get cut off economically, which means they can't survive either. David's darkening eyes grew dreamy. When you think of how much power a complex economy has over each individual, everyone needs to have a place to live, to buy food, water, energy, have access to the blockchain. It's endless. Imagine you have a sore tooth. You have to leave the apartment, which someone sold to you or rented to you. You have to be allowed on a bus. The dentist has to be willing to take your payment. It goes on and on. The amount of contracts that have to be fulfilled just for you to fix your sore tooth. In the sieve, no one will honor the contract of a convicted criminal. Any contract at all. That includes his existing property rights, his house and jetpack or whatever. DROs will not enforce property rights contracts for convicted criminals, which he agrees to when he first signs up with the DRO. All of his property reverts to unowned, which means anyone can have it except him. David shrugged. He has no place to go, no place to stay. He can't buy anything, use anything. Everything he has is deactivated, and he cannot survive in the sieve. David took a deep breath and turned to Roman. He has no choice. To be fair, he has one choice other than to leave the sieve. A thought struck Roman. David could see it rise in his mind and could see the older man viciously suppress it. Roman put down his spoon and said softly, What is his one choice? He can make restitution. What that restitution is can vary. It's determined by the DRO with the victim's family or the victim if he or she survived the attack. Conditional rights to participate in the sieve can be maintained if the criminal maintains the peace and pays restitution. Roman said, How many criminals take that option? Most do. Criminals always want something for nothing. The root of evil is the desire for the unearned. They don't want to go and carve out a life in the middle of nowhere. They tend to be greedy and lazy. Roman said, There are exceptions. David nodded. The jellyfish returned, but he waved it away. He turned to Roman and spoke the truth. Yes, 
your great-grandfather was one. Chapter 23 There were deaths other than Jane. I seemed to belong to an unlucky cast. I occasionally wondered over the years why I was launched into life amongst a buckshot of tiny gravestones. It probably had something to do with the stress of wealth. In college, when I took a class on statistics, I learned about the bell curve, outliers and regressions to the mean, you know. Our parents were remarkable, literally one in a million at times. And we were, as their children, likely to be above average, but nowhere near their level. A friend of mine's father was a great singer, and my friend was also good at carrying a tune, but couldn't silence the room like his dad. We were the second generation, shattered by the vain ignorance of our elders. When you succeed in life, it's so easy to swell yourself by saying that you are responsible for all of your success. Yeah, there is some willpower involved, some personal responsibility, but a very large chunk of it has to do with accidental factors. Where you're born, who you're born to, what language you learn as a child, how much money is around, how attractive you are, what your health is like, your height, your hair, and your raw intelligence, which is mostly genetic. (laughs) Thanks, Mom. Every kid I knew of a famous sportsman played that sport, and, and way above average, but not as well as their dad. Every kid I knew from a famous writer had seriously good language skills, but But the sports dads genuinely believed that it was simply grit and willpower and a commitment to training that got them to the top. They loved their lives. They wanted their kids to be happy. So obviously, the kids had to live their father's lives. Work harder. Works if you have a massive amount of raw ability programmed into your mind and body by the ineffable universe. A friend of mine was an underwear model. He went to the gym three hours a day and refused to drink any liquids for two days before a photo shoot so his skin would be paper thin over his rippled abs. Sure, I said, that makes sense because you're getting paid tens of thousands of dollars for that photo shoot and because your genetics gifted you with a lean physique to begin with. Now A lot of my friends got sucked into that willpower stuff. It was pretty tragic. One friend of mine wanted to play football like his dad. Began using steroids at the age of 14 because he just didn't have his dad's natural bulk. We were both dirt bike fanatics, not motorized, just pedal. As he grew in size, he shrank in stability. (laughs) We liked doing cool tricks on our bikes. But his tricks got more and more deranged until I really began to fear for his safety. I remember biking out back of a factory once with him and he just pedaled his bike right off a wall about six feet above the ground. He made it, giving a crazy-eyed whoop, having no idea how lucky he was, it seems. The steroids drove him crazy. One night we were biking back to our neighborhood and I had to swerve to avoid a rock on the sidewalk. You cut me off, he snarled at me. I'll be honest, I was kind of intimidated by his size and temper, so I had been deferring to him for a couple of months. But I'd had enough. You were tailgating, I shot back. His eyes widened in the dark, and I realized how black they looked. His veined biceps looked like giant lined sausages. He escalated, but I refused to back down. He demanded that we return to the rock and reenact the entire scenario in slow motion. That was too crazy for me. Like another friend of mine, the daughter of a famous lawyer who had a dispute with her friends about Springsteen concert tickets and wanted to conduct an entire mock trial in her living room. I sighed. Oh, I'm not going back to reenact a stupid swerve, bro. You were too close behind me, so when I swerved, you almost crashed. That's it. Let it go. I insultingly put a little trill at the end of my voice, reminding him of a famous song for kids. Can I say, 
I was pissed. He demanded that I admit that I had cut him off. I refused, insisting that the problem was that he was tailgating, and on and on it went, round and round. It was my fault, really. He escalated because he was used to me deferring to him. (laughs) My bad. I never did that again in my life. He doubled down to the point of neck-veined screaming, so then I just got on my bike and rode away. It was a strained and terrifying moment when I heard him get on his bike, skid around, and crank his meaty legs to pedal after me. He was screaming with rage like a demon under a priest. My heart began to thump painfully in my chest. He was a stronger biker than me, because of the steroids mostly, and so he began trying to drive his bike into mine sideways, demanding to know if he was still tailgating. It was a crazy, desperate battle, really. About half a block from my house, I had to slow down to feel for the keys in my front left pocket, and he almost rammed me into a tree at high speed. I dropped my bike as soon as I got to our front lawn and sprinted, dodging left and right like trying to evade a sniper, up to our side door. He came screaming and roaring up the driveway, aiming directly at me. I still remember, and my heart still pounds, at the memory of fumbling with my keys, trying to jam the right one into the lock. I yanked the door open, turned and slammed it shut, sweat pouring from my forehead despite the coolness of the evening. He pounded on the door maniacally, his puberty-broken voice hoarse from screaming. Thank God no one else was home. And we had a big property. I crept to the upstairs balcony and watched through the plump stone pillars as he picked up his heavy dirt bike and threw it back and forth, sparks flying from the tarmac as the steel of his wheels hit the black of the driveway. (sighs) Eventually, he pedaled off, his wheels wobbling bent from his raging impacts. He tried to give my bike a kick as he passed and squiggled off into the night. About a year later, he called, demanding that I return some football of his he claimed I had. Other than that, I had no more contact with him. I almost never saw him at school again. Now, when I think back, I guess he kept seeing me first and avoiding me. And then... About a year after high school, I read that he had died on a motorcycle, decapitated by running into a truck, because he didn't stop in time. Tailgating. And people try to tell me that there are coincidences in life. We can move on. That's really the essence of power, leaving people behind without a second glance. We all did that to Jane's parents, because there's no conformity without enforcement. And it was amazing to see. It was the first real flex I had seen from my parents' generation. No one was in charge, to my knowledge. No memo went out, no... Smoke signals drifted across the evening sky, but everyone silently agreed to exclude them. Ostracism is the most powerful weapon in the known universe. I think they knew it was coming. I think they knew the price of continued acceptance and just weren't willing to pay it. It's like my dad always said. If you want to be successful, just figure out the price of success and pay it. (laughs) It's the same with integrity, I guess. If you want to have integrity, just figure out the price of integrity and pay it. I never quite understood their position, frankly. (sighs) Talk about locking the barn door after the horse has left. I mean, what is the point of blowing up your social relationships after your daughter has died? Especially if you believe that some toxicity in those social relationships was responsible for her death. If your social relationships are okay, don't blow them up. If your social relationships have cost you your daughter, then don't blow them up. 
for the simple reason that blowing them up only makes things worse. If you can find out that you can live without these toxic social relationships, then you would just kick yourself forever for not separating from us before your daughter kills herself. Once we take your daughter, we own you, like it or not. I can respect anyone who bails out before disaster. I don't have a shred of respect for people who bail out after disaster. It's just a silly cartoon comedy, like a, like a parachute opening after some idiot has fallen to his death. No. They had to go. They made their decision. We simply respected it. <laughs> and where could they go? Nowhere. You find your tribe. You keep your tribe. Or you end up all alone. With less than nothing. Just the memory of something. Because they were new money, Jane's parents couldn't go back to whatever trailer park they crawled out from under. They would just face endless resentments and spoken or unspoken accusations that, oh, you think you're better than us. God! What a pathetic and mealy-mouthed statement. Of course we think we're better than you. And guess what, Cletus? People agree. That's why we are wealthy. <sighs> Everyone talks about wealth. Like, it just falls out of the sky and lands on some people by chance. That's not wealth. That's meteors and, and the lottery. Wealth is hard to make. Harder to keep. Everyone believes that wealth buys freedom. But becoming wealthy generally requires really good social skills. The real money is always in networking and negotiation, which means that you have to have a fairly desperate need for people to like you. Because if people don't like you, they won't give you their money. You get the money by being a people pleaser. And then you get a brand new social circle who knows exactly how desperate you are for their continued approval. Because they're the same way. You can't go back to where you came from, and you have to please everyone you end up with. We get power over you because you need our approval because we are all you've got now. So yes, when you land on our doorstep, we own you. <laughs> Does that sound like freedom? I suppose you could retreat to some ivory tower of navel-gazing contemplation. You could buy a remote island and live off fish and sunlight. But those people are inconsequential to the world. Who cares what they do? You can form, or you are banished.